We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Well, it is so good to be back with you. Uh, Thank you for your warm and embarrassing welcome earlier in the service. Uh, Usually a preacher wants you to clap after he stood up, not before. Um, As most of you know, I've been away, and if you're new, uh, you don't know, but I've been away for two and a half months after suffering an injury in my spine after a mountain biking accident on Labor Day weekend. And um, God has graciously and mercifully been putting me back together slowly but surely, and I'm really thankful to be able to be with you again in the pulpit this morning. Um, I'm particularly thankful for the tangible expressions of care and love that so many of you have given to Mandy and to me and our family over the past couple of months in cards and letters and treats and books and most of all, above everything else, is prayer. I I just can't describe the, the sense of gratitude that we have knowing how many of you are praying and have been praying for us over this time. So I feel like, you know, Mandy and I should give a long round of applause to you. I don't know if we can match yours to to us earlier, but um, your love has deeply humbled us and and I think softened us. And there's no doubt that I'm standing before you as a changed man and a changing man from all that we've been walking through. And and, uh, I thank God for that. I thank God for his mercy and his grace and for the way that he always uses trial you know this better than I do. He always uses trial to show us more and more dimensions of his grace and love and to teach us about himself. And I'm thankful for that in my life. I'm out of this context of physical brokenness and weakness. Uh, It has paralleled some brokenness and weakness in the life of our community as well. And so as I've been wrestling and recovering and praying, I've been asking God for clarity in terms of, Lord, what do you want us to do when I get to come back into this pulpit, and what do you want for a theme and focus and text? And honestly, the recurring theme has been the cross. Because of what's been going on in my own life, it's been a constant source of reflection, comfort, challenge, encouragement over the last several months, and and it's always relevant, uh, always relevant. The cross is the instrument of our salvation, It's also the height of God's self-revelation. It's when we see God most fully for who God is. And it is also the model for the Christian life. We are called to take up our cross and to follow Jesus on that way of the cross. And so the cross has just so much. It's always at the center of our Christian lives. It is the remedy for all of our problems, all of our difficulties, and all of the devil's schemes and works. The cross is at the center as the remedy for all of these things. And no issue in our Christian lives can properly be addressed without reference to the cross in some way, shape, or form. This holds for the the great matter of salvation. It's met and revealed at the cross, all the way down to the mundane and everyday realities of struggle that every single one of us has to put on or to wear or to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in our day-to-day lives. Lord, it's so challenging to be gentle and faithful and kind. And we struggle, but it's the cross that's the the place where that struggle should find its its locus and its strength and its power. So it holds for everything. And and it's perhaps no surprise as Martin Luther was lecturing on the Psalms in 1519 through 1521, he said this, Crux sola est nostra theologia. 
which from the Latin means the cross alone is our theology. So as I'm returning to be with you in this context today, we are going to spend some time focusing on the cross. And to do so by engaging this extended, rich reflection of the cross, one of the most ex rich and beautiful expressions in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, through chapter 2, verse 5. And we'll begin today with verse, just verse 17, just one verse, making two points. First, the priority of the cross, and then second, how not to pursue that priority. And I hope in the midst of this that we'll also unpack a bit of the heart of the gospel and, and apply it to our own hearts as well. So this first point, the priority of the cross, we can do this in a wide-angle lens way as well as in a narrow and more focused way. But the wide-angle lens, let me start with this point. In, the, in terms of the big picture, the church in Corinth was a church in conflict. They had chaos, they were in turmoil, and they were caught up with the idols of their age. But I should ask, what church is not caught up with the idols of their age? We are no different than the church in Corinth. For them, the idol of the day was what they called Sophia, or wisdom. But this was understood in a particular way in the first century Greco-Roman world in Corinth as cleverness of speech, rhetorical skill, eloquence. As philosophers and teachers, itinerant teachers would come into the city, this is what impressed and moved people. This was the cultural currency of the day, and they were caught up in this. And Paul is writing into that context. And after a brief introduction, and greeting, and then a, a quick exhortation. In verse 17, Paul takes the church in Corinth with all of its chaos right to the cross, to the proclamation of the cross in the gospel. Paul wants them in their challenges to wrestle with and reflect on the reality of the cross because he knows that the cross and the cross alone, which is God's surpassing power and wisdom, which we'll look at more next week, that the cross is the remedy of their, to, to their present challenges. Again, we'll see this more in the weeks to come, but recognize that from the beginning of this letter, Paul strikes his theme right away and takes them to the cross. I wonder, just to ask, are we quick? As we wrestle with challenges corporately, challenges personally, are we quick to return to and reflect upon and centrally focus upon the cross of Christ? That's what Paul models here. So that's one way we see the priority in this wide-angle way, is that Paul takes the church right to the cross. But in a more focused and narrow sense, look at what he writes in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So Paul is declaring, at least for his own apostolic calling, that preaching the gospel is his primary task, not baptizing. This doesn't mean that baptism was or is unimportant. By no means, Paul would say. To the contrary, Jesus commanded the apostles in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission to go out into all the world and to baptize people. This was an important sacrament that Christ gave to the church that reflects a visible manifestation of the truth of his gospel, and it was not to be neglected. Paul himself affirmed the importance of baptism in his own writings. Actually, the most exalted reflections on the sacrament of baptism come from Paul's own hand. So what are we to draw from this? The problem here is not baptism per se, but rather that the Corinthians were using baptism and the question of who baptized them as a proxy for their factions and disunity. 
Here was an important matter, even a central matter in the life of the church that had been distorted by their sin and no doubt by the devil who was at work among them and turned into an occasion for disunity. So Paul, in distancing himself and his apostolic calling, he's distancing himself from this problem by declaring that Christ did not send him to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It's not that he didn't or couldn't baptize. Actually, a few verses earlier, he says, look, I did baptize Crispus and Gaius and the household of Stephanus. But Paul is de-emphasizing the matter that was being used by the enemy to divide the church and instead reaffirming the the priority of the primary reality that unites the diverse people of God in the church, the gospel. So he's making a very particular argument in a very particular context and addressing a very particular problem in Corinth when he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And yet, I would say, even by making this particular argument, Paul is clearly actually articulating the priority of the gospel, which, as we'll see, has the cross at its center, over and above matters which rightly derive from the gospel, which baptism does coming from the word, the command of our Lord himself. The proclamation of the gospel, of the central work of the cross of Christ, remains primary and the priority. And over all the good, even godly things that Paul or the church could generally be doing, this thing is at the center of his apostolic calling from the Lord Jesus himself. Note who sent him. He says, Christ did not send me. Therefore, it was Christ who sent me, not to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel. Let me offer you an illustration and then an application of this. I've just started physical therapy this week. The surgeon didn't want me to do any, anything other than walk for the first couple of months. And I went to the physical therapist on Wednesday for my first appointment to kind of have the initial consultation. And uh, during that consultation, he wanted to see the script that was written by the surgeon. The script told him what the priority was, what to focus on, which was my thoracic spine, and all the muscles around it. It turns out your thoracic spine is like the stable central tower of your body, and most everything is connected to it, as I've learned. Now, at my age, there are many other physical ailments that I found myself communicating to the physical therapist during this initial consultation. (laughs) Lower lumbar back pain that long preceded the accident, and tightness in my right hamstring, and I won't bore you with the rest of the list that I gave to him. While these things are not unimportant, and certainly not necessarily even unrelated. Everything in the body is related to everything else. It's all connected. They weren't the primary matter or the priority of this work that I was to do with the physical therapist. So under the direction of the surgeon, the PT rightly focused on my thoracic spine and gave me a set of exercises that I'm now diligently doing in order to focus on that area of my body. It's not that those other issues are not less, or are not real or important or related. In fact, I hope they get addressed. But the primary thing needs to be addressed first. And obviously, you see in a similar way that Paul, under Christ's great direction, was sent by Jesus into the world to focus on the, uh, not primarily on baptism, as he writes, but on preaching the gospel. This was his priority. But it's not just his priority. Let me make an application of this to our lives. We're not apostles, with a capital A, like Paul, but we are a part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, as we confess with Christians throughout history in the Nicene Creed. 
That means that our task as a church is apostolic. At the center, at the core of the apostolic calling is the proclamation of the good news of the gospel, which always includes, as we'll see in a moment, the lifting up of the cross of Christ. You might remember this poignant moment in Jesus's ministry in John chapter 6. He's been teaching the disciples, the crowds around him about being the bread of life. And he says that he is the bread of life come down from above. And then he says that you cannot abide in me if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood. And these are hard things for his disciples to grapple with and accept and understand. And so many of them begin to walk away disappointed. And Jesus then turns to the 12 and he asks them, do you want to go away as well? And Peter answers in these wonderful words. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You have the words of eternal life. To the church, I must say that our apostolic calling prioritizes this dimension of the mission of God. By God's grace and God's mercy alone, we have the words of eternal life, the good news, which is to be proclaimed and shared with the world around us. Wherever the church finds itself, we happen to be here on the corner of Park and Tremont in this beautiful city, old city in, uh, called Boston. It could be in the farmlands of Kansas or the coastlines of California or in the, the city, in the heart of the city in Beijing, China. It doesn't matter where the church is. Wherever the church is, the church's task is to proclaim the good news to the world. It is to offer the words of life to the world around us and to one another in deep ways. This is our vocation. Now, let me nuance slightly and say, as we've studied over the last couple of weeks in our mission conference, if this proclamation is to be biblical and Christ-like, and to fit with our vocation as the people of God within the redemptive story of God from creation to new creation. And if it is to have integrity, as we heard last week, it is to be integrated with our being and our doing as well. The apostolic ministry of proclamation is never alone in our witness. It is always, as it was with Jesus and Paul, matched by a quality of life that gives it integrity. This is what is meant by the phrase that we've been using more and more and featured in our conference the last two weeks of integral mission. It's integrating, being, and saying, and doing as one common whole of our witness and mission to the world. But proclamation remains a priority in this calling. And before moving on to the second point of the message, I, if you'd allow me to be autobiographical for a moment and maybe just indulge me in this since the last two and a half months was the longest break from preaching that I've had in 20 years. So it feels somewhat uh, good to be back here and to be able to preach. But I, I've resonated with these words of Paul's from the beginning of my calling nearly 30 years ago into ministry. I've identified with the words of the prophet Jeremiah and somewhat even over the last couple of months. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more of his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary with holding it in. I cannot. Or as Paul says in chapter 9 of this letter, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me, he says, if I do not preach the gospel. And I want to just share openly with you that this is my heart and my calling. It is in some ways a necessity laid upon me by the Lord, and I do want to give public praise and thanks to God for enabling me to come back to this point, knowing that so much else could have happened in the accident back in September. This is what Christ has called me and sent me to do more than any other task, and there are many other tasks to do 
in the role of serving you in this capacity as your pastor. And there are many other things that we can do in the life of the church beyond preaching the gospel and proclaiming the cross. But one thing takes primacy. One thing has priority. And having said that autobiographically about my own sense of calling, let me remind you that this is not my or the other minister's task alone. Rather, it is a calling upon all of us in our common life together as the people of God, as the apostolic church. And in some ways, quite honestly, standing up and preaching in this pulpit is not all that hard, risky, or challenging. We pastors preach with the warmth and support of the walls of the church and the body of God's people. But the proclamation of the gospel carried out by our missionaries in Muslim countries, by our teenagers among their peer groups in their schools, and by all of you among your neighbors and friends and perhaps family members who reject Christianity and colleagues, this is something to behold. This is something that is risky and daring and takes courage. And this is something that remains our priority as the people of God, the proclamation of the gospel to the world. We have the words of eternal life that our world and that your neighbors and mine desperately need to hear. That's the priority. Now let's think secondly about how not to pursue this priority of proclaiming the gospel or the cross. Verse 17 again, the second half. Not with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Christ sent me to do this. He sent me to proclaim and preach the gospel, Paul is saying, but not in this way, not with words of eloquent wisdom or with cleverness of speech. There's a number of different ways, and if you look at a lot of the different translations, because the underlying Greek has so much semantic range, but I think this is a fair translation in the ESV. Cleverness of speech might be a bit better, but not in this way, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power or nullified. The word power is not actually there. It's this word that means to nullify or to make obsolete. To, to take away its effectiveness. So it's a fair rendering to say emptied of its power. The general principle that Paul lays down here is this. Gospel proclamation, which centers upon the cross of Christ, is not to be adorned in the currencies of the cultures in which it is found. Ancient Corinth, Corinth as we have seen, worshipped Sophia, wisdom. Again, by which they meant rhetorical skill and flourish, eloquence that would impress the hearers. This was at the heart of Corinthian idolatry, and Paul refuses to partner with that idolatry in any way as a missionary strategy. He will not preach with eloquent words of wisdom. Why not? Because to do so, to dress the gospel up in that kind of form, which would merely placate the idolatry of the Corinthians, would actually, in fact, be to empty the cross of its power to transform. It would merely be to reinforce their bondage to the idols of their day. So let's tease this out in three different threads from this little half of the, of the second half of, of verse 17. First thing, did you notice, actually, that the gospel itself is about the cross of Christ? So Paul says, I wasn't sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That means that the gospel message, the good news that we have to share, is centrally focused on the cross of Jesus. We cannot proclaim the gospel faithfully in any context in which we find ourselves, from this pulpit or from your cubicle or lab or living room, unless we are speaking of the cross of Jesus Christ. We speak of the cross. Later, Paul will say, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The good news is about the cross. 
We'll pick, up, pick that up more in weeks to come. Second little thread, the cross has power. It has effect. It has impact. And we'll come to this more fully next week when we consider the, the cross as the power of God and the wisdom of God. The irony is thick. This very instrument of execution public, publicly portrays the powerlessness of its victims. Whatever their crimes or claims, victims of the cross are anything but powerful. They have been rendered powerless. And yet here at the heart of the Christian good news to the world is the fact that this man who succumbed to the mighty power of Rome and, and was defeated at the cross, that this man and his cross itself was the means paradoxically by which the power of God would be unleashed on the world. And so therefore this is the feature of the good news that is proclaimed. So Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The cross has power. And third, and more elaborately, because it's really what our text is saying, this power is lost if the gospel is dressed up in the gods of the present age. We need to be careful here and a bit nuanced, so stay with me. The, the gospel does, in fact, bring us to God. And this does, in fact, bring us the very things for which every one of our hearts is longing. Peace, joy, forgiveness, purpose, strength, community, connection, love. What else do we long for? And it is only in coming to the God of, of heaven and earth, the God who is our creator, the God who's put those very longings within us that we can come to know these things in their deepest sense. And the gospel is the means by which we come to know this God and to be reconciled to him and adopted into his family by his grace and mercy alone. And it's then that we come to rest. Even Jesus himself preaches the gospel in this way. Remember with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he says, look, you're thirsty. And you're trying, to, you're trying to quench your thirst by looking for love, and you're trying to find love from all these men in your life, and it's not working. You keep going through them over and over and over again. If you knew who I was and the gift of God that I'd come to bring, you would have asked me, he said, and I would have given you living water. And when you drink of this water, guess what? You will never thirst again. Your thirst will be quenched. And so as we proclaim the gospel, we can proclaim that what you long for is only found through this good news. Paul actually does this to, in his letter here to the Corinthians. He says, you, you're longing for wisdom? Okay. Well, let me show you how you get true wisdom. And he'll do this later in chapter 2, not in this series, but perhaps another time we'll come back to it. But basically he says, you can only become truly wise as you come to know the God who's been crucified through his, in his son, Jesus Christ. That's the pathway to true wisdom. So he even makes this argument. And making that argument as we proclaim this gospel is a faithful proclamation of the cross that is not above Jesus or above Paul, therefore not above us. It is right and good. So let's affirm that. But then what is Paul warning us about here? That there is a way to present and to dress up the gospel that does not demolish the idols around us, but reinforces them. A faithful proclamation reveals the idols and says what you're seeking to get from that idol you can't get in that way you can only get it by coming to this crucified king but there is a false way to proclaim the gospel which paul says would have been done in corinth if he had dressed it up with words of eloquent wisdom or cleverness of speech in such a way that it would have left the idolatry of sophia intact in the corinthians and made the gospel of jesus merely a means to the end of arriving at the top of their cultural 
race. And that is what needs to be avoided. That presentation is, in fact, emptying the cross of its power. It is, instead, making it just oh, another way of reinforcing the idols of the age. Uh, in Japan, this summer, uh, Jameson and I and Julian and Kim took a visit to visit uh, to our missionaries in Japan. We learned that Shinto shrines often have a particular focus in terms of the blessing that worshipers are seeking from a particular shrine. They're, they're often devoted to a, a particular god. And one of our missionaries in Japan, Adrian Tam, took the four of us to a famous Shinto shrine that is dedicated to the god of learning. It's the place that people go to find the blessing of academic success. And the notion of the exchange here, which is often how religion works, is quite explicit. Pay homage to the God, say a prayer, buy a charm, and a person will end up with what they really want, with the real object of their devotion and worship, academic success. At this shrine, there were hundreds of prayers written on little blocks of wood hanging on both sides of the shrine, and most of them, of course, weren't written in English, but a handful of them were, and I took some time to read a few of them, and this was one prayer written by clearly a young woman, probably not a native English speaker, but this is what she wrote in English. Dear God, I want to be happy and want to give full happiness to my family. I want to earn money and make a bright future ahead. And please, I want to pass the N4 exam. Please help me to pass the exam. Please give me my future boy that makes me happy, that he loves me well. I want to have visa, please. Please provide me with a visa to live here. Thank you. And then a smiley face and two hearts. <laughs> it's a sweet prayer, but do you realize what it reveals underneath? A classic way of approaching religion that is about exchange. I will offer you a prayer if you give me what I really want. And any presentation of the Christian gospel that falls into this trap is merely reinforcing the bondage that we live in in our sin. To avoid this, Paul says in his proclamation of the gospel that he will not take up words of eloquent wisdom or cleverness of speech. Rather, he refuses to allow any confusion about the content of his gospel by dressing it up in this kind of eloquence because he doesn't want the Corinthians to confuse the cross of Christ with merely the best way of getting to the top of their cultural pursuit of wisdom. If that were the case, where would the power be in that? Maybe to bring this a little closer to home, or at least something that most of us are aware of in our present context in the church around the globe is what we refer to often as the health and wealth gospel, which is very popular in places in our country and popular in countries in places around the world as well. And it's, deep, it's a deep distortion in this kind of way, because what that gospel is offering is prosperity through the means of Jesus. Prosperity with health or prosperity with finances, but it's offering prosperity as the thing that you really want and are really worshiping. And when that gospel is preached, it doesn't liberate anybody from the bondage of sin. It merely straps them further in that bondage because those gods of health and wealth will never deliver. They will only demand more and more. Let me try to get a little closer to home. Let's try to apply this to our lives in Boston in particular. Do you think it was any accident that I men mentioned the Shinto shrine connected to academic success? What is our city's greatest idol? It's education, learning, intellectual superiority and sophistication. 
Ask anybody who's raised a child in this city what the idols of this city are. We can tell you very clearly, because it affects the way we think about sixth grade and seventh grade and so on and so forth. It's a part of our culture here. So in this context, how might the cross of Christ be emptied of its power? Well, we take the gospel and the cross, and then we clothe it with such intellectual sophistication that the attraction to the gospel is not merely to the crucified and risen Jesus, the living water, but it's to the depth and explanatory power of the scriptures and the Christian tradition. I'm going to nuance this in a moment, but what then are people really drawn to? Is it to Jesus? Or is it to the sophistication and depth and therefore intellectual respectability that they deeply desire and perhaps even worship? As a church that rightly affirms the importance of the intellect, and that is unabashed in our, de- in our dedication to the God of truth, and that clearly affirms that to know this God, to study him and to worship him, to give your life over to him, is the pathway to the greatest and most honest intellectual satisfaction and honesty that one could ever know. We must at the same time be careful that we are not dressing the cross up in a kind of intellectual sophistication as a way of placating the idol's of our city. Of course, we must always contextualize the gospel, the cross of Christ, in any cultural context. And we see this best in our missionaries when they go to foreign cultures and they study the language and the customs and the way in which honor is understood and and status and so on. And they, they learn all of these things so that they might translate the unchanging truth of the gospel into a message that the people of that culture could hear. And I want to say very clearly that when we live in a culture like Boston, and many of you work and live in academia, that we must present the gospel in a means by which those in that context can hear and understand. And there is nothing to be ashamed of in terms of the, the defense of the the cohesion and logical and rational clarity of this reality of the gospel in this context. We must do that to, make, to, to allow the gospel to be heard. But this contextualization can at sometimes go too far when it substitute, substitutes something besides the crucified Messiah to be the center. Or when it adds something to the cross or takes something away from the gospel message in order to make it more palatable and relevant to the cultural context in which it finds itself. The gospel can never be more relevant than it already is. The cross of Jesus Christ can never be more relevant than it already is. It is the cornerstone of reality, the bedrock and foundation of the truth. And it is the means by which every single person, whether of great status in our cultural uh, idols of the day or of no status, can come to know the genuine life and power of God in their lives. And we should never be ashamed of that. Have you known this power? I should ask. The power of the gospel, which has the ability to lift up the humble and bring down the proud, which brings about a genuine release from the shackles of guilt and shame with which we so often are burdened and bound because of the sinfulness of our own hearts, because of the things maybe we've said or done even in this past week. Do you know the reality of this gospel that the living God who created everything, the one whom we read in Isaiah, looks down on the earth and sees people like grasshoppers. He's so giant and big and cosmic that the living God, when he made himself known, he chose to make a Roman cross at the heart of his revelation. That his people for 2,000 years hence would be reflecting on, meditating upon, preaching and proclaiming without any adornment the reality and scandal of 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 a God who entered the flesh and went to a Roman cross for the sake that we might be set free from sin, forgiven, and brought into new life. 
And not just that we could do that as individuals, but that we could do that as a whole, as a humanity reached by this one God, to, that he reached out to save us so that we would be bound together in bonds of affection and love across social classes and racial distinctions and any other distinction that we could come up with in the world. That's the power of the gospel. Have you known that power? The power of the cross? genuinely and personally, corporately and collectively, the power that has the ability to set you free from all of the petty things which constantly berate you in your mind or your heart, which try to tell you that you're nobody and you're worthless and you're, you're never going to measure up and you, you're, you've missed it already and you're just a lost cause. The gospel, the power of the cross is to set you free from all of those lies and accusations that the enemy makes against you and to bring you into genuine full life that is liberated and free from the idols of your day. And there is tremendous power in this gospel. Have you known this power? Paul says this is the priority. And not in a way that's dressed up, but in a way that is unadorned. During college, I attended a, a church. One of my mentors uh, was the pastor there that was as intellectually sophisticated as Park Street Church is, I will say. His predecessor had left the church to go be the president of Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. And he had left the church. I left the church to go on and, and pursue my studies. And he left a, a few years later to go serve in, in Europe and Eastern Europe in a different context as a missionary. And I wrote him about 10 years after we'd been together. He's remained a friend. And I said, I asked him this question. I said, I want to see people being converted to Christ. Did you ever have that much in your ministry back in the States? If so, why do you think that was? If not, why not? And this was his answer. Honest humble answer. He said, not very much. I can't say for sure why, but it may have something to do with the fact that I was more impressed with my own apologetic approaches and insights than the simple unadorned gospel, which is God's power unto salvation for all who believe. The simple unadorned gospel the old rugged cross, unvarnished, unpolished, shocking, simple, agonizing, scandalous, but oh so powerful. This is our priority, our script, our mandate, our one song. Why? Because unadorned, the cross of Christ at the heart of the good news is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And it is the power of God for the ongoing sanctification of everyone who has already believed. The gospel is not just for the people out there, is it? Paul actually demonstrates this by taking the church in Corinth. They had already encountered Jesus. And he brings them back to the cross. Just like we as the church must always be brought back to the centrality and priority of the cross. Because there the power of God exists to, to grow us, change us, renew us, sanctify us. This is our calling. May we glory in the cross. May we worship the God of the cross. May we celebrate and prioritize the cross in all our dealings with the world and with one another. Speak the cross to your brothers and sisters in this room this week. And speak the cross to your neighbors, co-workers, family members, barbers, grocery store workers, and anyone else that you encounter in the week ahead. This is our priority.
For your gospel, O oh God, we thank you. It is astonishing and simple. I pray that you would help each of us to meditate upon the cross in the week ahead. And Lord, for your mercy, grace, forgiveness, love, justice that are shown and revealed at the cross, we thank you. We thank you for what a privilege it is to be yours, to be loved by you, to be forgiven by you, to be embraced by you, to be commissioned by you because of your cross. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.